0: You know, I was thinking this week that there are, uh, there are certain birthdays, I think, that are more significant uh, than others. Now, I know, I know some of you are in the room like, yeah, 50, that's, that's significant. I'm not talking about upper end. I'm talking about lower end, like when you're five, like when you're a whole hand old, right? Like That's a big deal. Or when you're 10, because you have two whole hands. These are significant birthdays. There is, of course, 13. Uh, 13 is when you officially become what? We pray for your souls, right? Uh, They didn't have preteen when I was a preteen, like you were just either like a teenager or you weren't, right? Uh, There, of course, is 16 when you enter into what? Driving, significant. And then there's 18. What happens when you turn 18? Well, Uh, You can be drafted, you can buy cigarettes, and my favorite, which is exactly what I did on my 18th birthday, you could buy a lottery ticket. Oh yeah, I spent a whopping $2 to see, right, to make my fortune. I I remember actually going into the gas station and getting my lottery ticket and scratching it off and winning all of nothing. And then I bought a Hostess apple pie, right? And then I went home. Uh, man, I don't know if you've heard, uh, but there was a single winning ticket for the Mega Millions jackpot. Some 1.28 billion dollars. Uh, that's a payout of a meager, of a meager 624.5 million dollars. Now, I'm thinking that if you, if you won that money, which I know it's not you because it was in Illinois, unless you were in Illinois, that'd be weird, but you're here. If you won that kind of cash, no doubt, no doubt it would change your life. In fact, if you look at news feeds right now, the question, age-old question, continues to pop up over and over and over again. What would you do with those winnings? Like, what would you do with $626.5 million? What would you do with that? Or would you choose the annuity option, right, and get all the money over the course of 30 years? I have no idea. I got a Hostess apple pie, right? Like that's all I've won. But my guess is, is that it would change your life. And I, and I would guess, I would guess mostly for the positive. but. There is, there is a shadow side of winning the lottery. There have been plenty of past winners whose lives are worse off now than they we were before they won the lottery. Plenty of winners, actually, who have less money than they did before, uh, whose eyes were too large for their stomach. You know, later today, Google the downside of winning the lottery, and you will be buried in article after article after article of all those who… Uh, gained the whole world, and lost their soul. You see, money, and by extension, the things which money can buy, it intoxicates us. It intoxicates our heart and our mind and our spirit of each and every person. It is one of the leading arguments in all families, and it is one of the top three reasons that married couples move towards divorce. A Saint Paul says, was he writes to a young pastor named Timothy, Paul says, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, they've wandered from the faith and they've pierced themselves with many griefs. Jesus will say later in Luke's gospel, Jesus will say, no one can serve two masters, either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. So clearly, clearly money poses a threat or becomes a hurdle to the abundant life of Jesus. Now, we have been in a year-long series called Abiding in Jesus, framed by John chapter 15, where Jesus says this. He says, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes so that it'll be even more fruitful. See, church, when when we abide in Jesus… When we are in the vine, then our lives will be fruitful. And those things which block or threaten that fruitfulness are cut away by the gardener. You know, it's clear from just a brief look at the Scriptures that money, money can get in the way of kingdom fruitfulness in our lives. Now, I know that it makes a lot of people uncomfortable when the preacher starts talking about money, and here's how I know because lots of you are looking at your feet and not me. But it's undeniably, it's undeniably on our minds, right? The economy has monopolized much of the news as of late, and it is creating stress and anxiety in the lives of people. Today, we're not going to talk so much about a worldly economy, but we are going to talk about a kingdom economy and what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus and how it is we need to posture our hearts towards money and possessions. So, let's get into it. We're going to get into it. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. You'll want a Bible. There's paper versions, analog versions there in the pew you can use. You can use a digital version. That's fine, too. Luke chapter 12, starting starting this morning at verse 13. Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 13. Now, again, bit of context as you're finding it, right? We, We are on the way with Jesus, whose face has been set toward Jerusalem, toward the events that would rescue and restore humanity, namely to the events of suffering, death, and resurrection, so that you and I might be liberated from the captivity of our sin, healed of our brokenness, and set free to proclaim God's favor. Now here at the beginning of Luke chapter 12, Luke writes that thousands of people have gathered. In fact, there are so many people that at the beginning of chapter 12, Luke notes that they were literally trampling on one another. So, as Jesus, like this, this kind of Jesus mosh pit is sort of clamoring for space to hear Jesus, Jesus leans over to his disciples and he says to them, beware of the leaven." Of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, a couple things, a couple quick things. Leaven, uh, leaven is the substance that makes a dough rise. Right, it eats sugars and produces CO2, uh, creating a risen loaf. And it takes very little leaven in a huge mound of dough to get a rise. A little bit goes a long way. Or or another way to say this is a little bit can transform or modify the whole. So what is Jesus saying? He's saying that which transforms your life, that modifies your living, Jesus says, is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, even a little bit of it will modify you. It'll transform you. Now, what is hypocrisy? Big word. Hypocrisy is basically when the inside and the outside don't match. When there is a disconnect between our internal belief and our external behavior. Right? When the insides and the outsides don't match. When there is a disconnect between that internal belief and our external behavior. And Jesus is saying that this This simple disconnect between belief and behavior is the substance that can modify or transform your whole life. And he is saying at the beginning of chapter 12, beware. Now, Jesus would go on to talk to the disciples for about another 12 verses, and then finally we arrive at 13. So, when all of a sudden someone in that huge kind of Jesus mosh pit, right, someone speaks out of the crowd, and this is what they say They say, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. So, here's the picture, right? There's a massive crowd who's clamoring to hear Jesus. Jesus is teaching the disciples in a pointed way, but probably in a way that uh, the crowds could hear him as well. And some random dude, literally out of the crowd, demands, listen, demands that Jesus divide the inheritance. That's gutsy. Now, in in fairness, it it is commonplace at the time of Jesus for people to seek the wisdom of a rabbi who can and will interpret the things of the Torah. And the Torah does actually deal with inheritance issues in passages like Numbers 26 and 27 and Deuteronomy 20 or 21, somewhere there. Uh, Let let me boil it down, basically this. uh, The Torah would say that the firstborn of a family receives a double portion. So in this case, let's assume for argument's sake that there are two brothers, The oldest brother, the oldest brother, of course, gets two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger brother gets one-third. That's how it works. But this random dude in the crowd is demanding of Jesus, probably a younger brother, let's say again for the sake of arguments, a younger brother. He's basically saying, hey, Jesus, demand that my older brother give me a sixth of his extra third. Because if I get a sixth of his extra third, then we both have half, Now, some of you are doing the math. Trust me, I asked my wife, right? Math educator, all's fine. Half. That's what he wants. Here's what he's saying. If I could could roll it around, maybe simplify it. The younger brother is saying to Jesus, listen, I want what I'm owed. I want what I'm owed. And so tell him to divide the inheritance with me so that it's equal. So we both have half. Half. Now, Jesus, I love this, Jesus is unwilling to engage in matters of kind of worldly dispute. And in fact, as is often the case, like Jesus just drives to the heart of the matter. So here's where we're going to pick it up. We're going to pick it up at verse 15. Here's what Jesus says. He says, well, watch out. Be on your guard. Which, can I say, by the way, are both commands, it's like stand up, sit down, right? These are imperatives. He's commanding that we watch out and be our guard. Not suggestions, Jesus is actually commanding a kind of proactive attention to what? Against all kinds of greed. Now, greed is defined as the kind of the intense and selfish desire for something, especially, especially wealth or power. And greed, church, greed is an attitude that places us at the center of the universe. Greed is an attitude of the heart that assumes that we are owed something. Greed is an attitude as old as the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were deceived to believe that God had something that they didn't. And if we were to read back in Genesis chapter 3, the text says, they saw that the fruit was good for eating and that they would get what God had, a knowledge of good and evil. Another way to say it is they would get what they were owed. So what do they do? Well, they eat. Rather than live in the promises and the generosity of the Father there in the garden, Adam and Eve give way to greed, to this heart posture, and it leads them towards disobedience. It becomes for them a threat and a hurdle to the abundant life that the Father wants for them. So much so, it's such a threat that they get kicked out of the garden. You see, they believe the lie that if they just had more, then their life would be full. Now ironically, their longing for more left them with less. Watch out, Jesus says. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life, he says, does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Church, if, 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 we're, not, if we're not careful, if we're not watchful, we will give in to greed. And when we give in to greed, we'll begin to measure our life by what we have. And then, in a very subtle and I think malicious way, we begin to believe that it is by our work, which, by the way, has led to all of the possessions that I possess, we begin to believe that it is our work that defines who we are and saves us from who we were. Now, in order to drive the point home, Jesus tells the parable of a rich man, which, again, just note, at the beginning of this parable, the man is already rich. We should pay attention to that. Uh, Jesus isn't saying, like, you shouldn't have money. The man's already rich. He's, He's not saying that. We need to jettison the idea that if we have money, that's somehow not godly or in the kingdom economy. Not the case. The issue is not, at least not here, that the man had money, but in this case, the rich man has a bumper crop, right? Massive harvest, verse 16. The ground yielded an abundant, a very great harvest, and he thought to himself, what should I do? So so the rich man, by God's grace, has this abundant harvest. By God's grace, the rich man gets richer, and he doesn't know what to do. I mean, he's thinking to himself, like, like, what should I do with all these blessings? What should I do with all of these crops? Like, what should I do with all of the gifts of the ground? That question, what shall I do, reveals something I think important for us. Uh, this man had possessions, but he had no purpose. He had possessions, but no purpose. And so, not paying attention to the attitude of his heart, greed stirs this man to build big barns in which to store all of these possessions. And then he just gets to kick back and care not about the world around him. He gets to string a hammock between two trees, right? Two trees, and sip on a a Mai Tai with a little umbrella in it, right? Like, that sounds delightful. That sounds, um, honestly, that sounds amazing. And God says he's a fool. Isn't it interesting how easily that sounds so good and delightful, and God says, you, you are a fool. The man dies. He's left with nothing, and all those possessions without any kind of purpose, where do they go? King Solomon whose wealth was greater than all kings, whose wisdom was, man, unreal, he says the abundance of possessions is nothing more than meaninglessness. In Ecclesiastes 2, he says, for a person may labor with wisdom, they can labor with skill, and they can labor with knowledge, and then, then they have to leave all that they own to another person. This too, he says, is meaningless." So, Jesus gets to the end of this parable, and He kind of puts it on a pin, and He gives us a choice, really, and the choice is this. You can either be rich toward God, or you can be rich toward yourself to store up things for you. I can either live in kind of a kingdom economy where I'm rich toward God, or I can live in a worldly economy where I'm the center of the universe. Now the economics in the kingdom of Christ begins and ends with Jesus who, for our sake, left the opulent throne room of heaven, who left all of the possessions in the entirety of the known universe. He left all of that, put it all aside to take on flesh and to dwell in our midst. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, we heard this earlier, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for our sake He became poor, so that through His poverty we might become rich. See, kingdom economics begins in Jesus, who would give His very life so that you and I can have one. Kingdom economics sees the Savior of the world breathing His last on a rough-hewn piece of wood there on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and by by all purposes, looking at the cross, that seems like loss. And yet for those of us in Christ, that is the power of God unto salvation. What the world sees as loss, we as Christians see as gain. Kingdom economics is rooted in generosity the giving of one's time, possessions, and, yes, very life for the sake of others. And all of this, all of this is seen in Jesus' posture toward you and me, toward all of humanity. For those of us who have grown up in and around the church, I think sometimes we forget that Jesus didn't have to leave heaven. He, he didn't have to come. But motivated out of love. And for a real desire that you would have abundant life, he would give his own. So that you and I could be liberated from sin, healed of our brokenness, and set free to proclaim God's favor. I said it at the beginning, bears repeating. This is a year long series framed by John 15, where Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm the vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, He's going to cut away, and every branch that does bear fruit, He's going to prune so that it will bear more fruit. Friends, as we abide in the vine, as we rest in Jesus, those same kingdom economics, which Jesus lived and modeled for you and me will become our own economics. Like Him, shaped in His image, we become moved to a radical kind of generosity, to a giving of our time, our possessions, and even our money for the sake of other people, for the message of the gospel so that others might come to faith. What does that begin to look like? Well, I remember, this is, man, three years ago, I think when I was, I was first here, and it was the first congregational meeting I got to have in my role as senior pastor, which we have two a year, right, and one's like, hey, we're celebrating ministry, the other one is finance. Which was the first? finance, right? So, get to present the budget. I remember, I remember very clearly, uh, we were talking in that meeting about our first fruit giving, right? As a church, we're working to tithe. So all that we bring in, we tithe away and give out. And that year, one of our first fruit receivers was St. John Allendale, specifically for their ministry to Grand Valley State University. And if you remember looking at that budget line, you will see we gave them $10,000. And I remember someone asking in the course of that meeting, like, Pastor, shouldn't we just use that $10,000 and do a ministry to GVSU? Now, apart from just the geography of St. John Allendale literally resting basically on the campus of GVSU and us being about two miles removed from that, The heart posture was already there, and interestingly, it gave us an opportunity to practice this radical generosity, to see what might happen when we give for the sake of others, when we seek to bless other people with the things that we've been blessed by, to know our own gifts and to give those gifts away. So by God's grace and, quite honestly, the generosity of you, the church family, we were able to give them $10,000 that year. And we've continued to give them money out of our first fruit giving. Well, just this past week, uh, Karen and I got an email basically describing the fruit of that giving. What's happened uh, with that money? So here's a couple of the things for the rundown. Earlier in the spring, two of our GVSU graduates who met at St. John, they married and they brought their son to St. John in order to be baptized because they wanted their son baptized in the church that they feel responsible is for how strong their faith is today. They've added a position to their church council called the Director of Youth and Family Ministries It is a position that is now filled by one of their former GVSU students, Jared. And Jared and his new wife, Maggie, who is also a GVSU grad, decides to stay in Allendale, buy a house, and continue with the ministry work at St. John, specifically to GVSU. Maureen, the pastor there, has been asked to send in two recommendations for two GVSU graduates who will now be going to the seminary. And there have been, of GVSU students, four baptisms. This is the fruit, church. It's incredible fruit, incredible fruit. But she makes clear, and Pastor Surches makes clear, that it's not possible apart from the generosity of the saints at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Church, as one of your pastors, can I say, I'm just, I'm just proud of you that we are living the very thing that Jesus wants us to live. And my prayer that as we walk away today, walk away today, that we continue to embrace this life of generosity, to be on guard and to watch out for greed, to understand that what we possess are gifts, and they're to be stewarded back to God and to the world. I certainly pray that for our community of faith. I also pray that for each and every one of us, that our lives in our homes and in our neighborhoods and our places of vocation, that we would embrace those very things as well. So, may God's Spirit so infuse His courage and His tenacity, His Spirit of power, that we can continue to give the way that Jesus describes here. To God be the glory. Amen. And so may the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding may guard and keep our hearts in Christ Jesus today and every day. Amen.